Welcome to the Latter-day Contemplation Presents Come Follow Me podcast. I'm your co-host, Abdul Haq, also known as Christopher Hurtado. I'm also co-host of the Latter-day Peace Studies Presents Come Follow Me and Latter-day Contemplation podcasts. In this podcast, I'm joined by my co-host and Sufi master, Sufi Al-Hajj Daoud, also known as Dr. David Peck. Dr. Peck is also the host of the Of Saints and Sufis, Musings of a Mormon Mystic podcast. On this podcast, we're sharing an actual master-disciple dialogue on scripture with little to no editing. I'm your co-host, Sufi Al-Hajj Dawood, also known as Dr. David Peck. The Sufi path is a spiritual, mystical, and contemplative practice often described as a journey. Universal Sufism is not a religion. Rather, universal Sufism is a spiritual path that welcomes persons of all religions or no religion at all. Our path is open to all, welcomes all, loves all. Sufi scripture study begins with a de-educational process that speaks directly to the souls of saints and Sufis and their scriptures. This study sets aside mere ethical or doctrinal readings through what Sufis call unlearning. This Sufi mystical approach enables one to see the scriptures afresh through spiritual eyes. We invite you to join our unfolding dialogue. Let the journey begin. Salam, David. Peace be with you. Peace be with you as well. Salam. It's good to be back with you on the mic. This is your choice, right? These verses are, it's your turn to choose. You've chosen some verses. We are covering the required reading for Come Follow Me, Philippians and Colossians. Only as usual, we're only going to go into a few verses and go deep into those verses. The verses you chose come from Philippians chapter 1. Wait, it's only one verse. Philippians chapter, chapter 1 verse 21. Yeah. So, okay. NRSV translation. For to me, living is Christ and dying is gain. That's it. For to me, Paul says, living is Christ and dying is gain. Let's, uh, I don't know if there's anything in there that catches your attention for our unlearning discussion. And uh, we can get going here. I think this is a profound scripture. And I'm usually one of these people that, like, when I go attend, whatever, Sunday school, or we have a discussion with, I have a discussion with somebody, uh, the verses that I would like to talk about are rarely the verses other people would like to talk about. I mean, very rarely. Uh, you know, they want to talk about doctrinal verses, what Christ said, or I mean, Paul said, da-da-da-da-da-da. And that means that we have to da-da-da-da, and that's why we're wrong, and these other churches are wrong, or we're right, and other churches are wrong, and how we, you know, it becomes a polemical engagement rather than a spiritual investigation. Which is really anti-Paul, not to mention anti-Christ. Yeah, yeah I yeah. think so. Yeah, yeah. Christ wanted to capture our spiritual imagination. That's the purpose of a parable, is to, to get us out of, uh, out of that literal mindset where Paul said, the letter kills, the spirit gives life, right? That's exactly where I was going to go next. Yeah, he's pretty explicit about that. And he defines prophesying as something that we all do. That is, if we do it, and we do it when we say things that uplift others, that build people up. That's right. And so tearing people down really seems obviously antithetical to that. So I call it anti-Paul and anti-Christ. 
So the things that stand out to me in this verse, Master, are living and dying, because I'm assuming we're going to go into a discussion of living and dying that's an unlearning discussion, right? That's different from the, let's say, the meaning on the face of it, right? Correct. And then, of course, what it means to be Christ. Mm. I, I, I mean, I'm coming from a place where I don't feel like Christ is limited to Jesus. I feel like Jesus is the Christ, but Christ isn't Jesus. Christ is bigger than Jesus. Or how about, yeah, Christ isn't only Jesus. Right. So that's what what stands out to me. The rest of it is, well, this is Paul, right? For to me, he says, that's, he's giving us his take. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, gain. What does it mean to gain? I mean, again, here's, I'm going to take a stab at this. I'm going to say living versus dying here and it being a gain to die would be something like dying to the ego and being alive again in Christ, meaning a life of the soul, a spiritual life, a spiritual aliveness. As a Sufi, I'm going to approach this. And uh, I believe there's a version, it might be the KJV, that says something like, to live is Christ. Oh. Well, that that's just, I mean, it's, when I look back at the NRSV living as Christ and I compare it to to live as Christ, it doesn't seem that different side by side. But when you said it, it really struck me. To live is Christ. So that speaks to my sensibility that, that Christ isn't only Jesus, that Christ is bigger than Jesus, right? That Jesus is the Christ. But I don't know. So can you. So can I. Uh, we're supposed to be saviors on Mount Zion. We're supposed to be Christ-like. What does that mean? Christ says he doesn't do anything, save he saw the Father do it, and he says, come follow me. It sounds to me like I'm supposed to do what he did, in some sense. Well, yes, but you live an entirely different life. When you say do as he did, it doesn't mean you do the same actions. Uh, or, or that, you know, because you, you have your own family life and your own children, and you have your own friends, and you have your own path and so i think that when jesus said i only do what the father i see the father do i think what he's saying is that that doing is not a set of actions it's a way of being and a way of living so for me living is christ or to live is christ uh when we look at that the living there is not like a style of life it's a spiritual mode of being so it it changes being alive in christ would be another way i would think about it meaning we're alive in uh, our the christ we construct within ourselves is uh, another brilliant way of maybe taking a look at that so that's how i yeah i don't see that as um an externalized thing i was just going to go to living in christ too I know that's something, that's language Paul uses. It's also language John uses, this en Christos, right, in Christ. Right. Yes. Yeah, no, that's true. And it, it's, a, uh, I guess, sort of the Sufi saying that we're journeying to God, with God, in God, becomes sort of a way of summarizing that, that, that there's many aspects to this journey, and that it's not, a lot, not a lot of ethical discussion in that saying, is there? It's not a lot about doing A or doing B. Instead, it's, it's, it's being alive, right? That's a beautiful sentiment. Let me repeat that. Tell me if I get, get it wrong. So we're journeying to God with, with God. God in, in God. God. Mm-hmm. 
And of course, the question arises, what do we mean by that? Well, we mean the divine, but we also mean our soul, which is a divine nature. So journey, uh, so the, the name God that we're using there really is broader as well. And then you can make it communal. Sufis believe very strongly in communities, what we would call uh, that we travel with all the illuminated souls. And what that means is that, that to journey to God, with God, in God, can also mean them. That we, we are committed to this path together. And so there's a, a community function to this, which is not ethical. We don't say, oh, watch out, brother. You know, you've got a, I can tell you you've got a moat in your eye there. Uh, it's not any of that kind of dealing at all. Instead, it is a sharing uh, uh, of, of life and a sharing of burden and a sharing of joy. And so this whole phrase of, of living or journeying to God, in God, with God, with God, in God, uh, can be understood in a number of ways, right? Are you going to go into any of those ways? Yeah, I think we, we are going to talk about that as we go along a, a little bit diff- further into our discussion. Today's scus- discussion or conversation, from my point of view as a teacher, your teacher, my, my perspective on this today is going to be heavily Sufi. Uh, it's obviously minimalistic or, you know, there's a, a sort of a paucity of, of scripture here, right? There's a, we've pared it down to one verse. I don't count the words, but it's less than 10 words, I'm sure. And um, so today's going to be kind of Sufi heavy for a little bit. And so we'll go into that. Absolutely. Let's take some, a word like Christ, which uh, is not, it's not a Hebrew word. Um, and uh, nor, nor in the Arabic am I going to find Christ. Uh, I believe it's a, a Greek word. Right. Christos is Greek. It's the same sense as Mashiach, right? Or Messiah in Arabic, right? To Messiah in English. Christ, Messiah, chosen one, anointed one. Anointed one, chosen one, yeah. I think uh, in, in the Arabic, it's, it's very much uh, associated with uh, being anointed. Uh, because the, the, the root of, of the word uh, can mean to wipe something down or to polish something. And of course, anointings are often done by, by touching the body with, with oils or whatever it is the anointing is. I've seen a, a lot of cremations in India. I've been to cremation ghats in Varanasi. I've been to uh, Shaivik uh, cremation Gats, the places, the staircases where they do the cremations, uh, in a, a Shiva temple uh, outside of, of Kathmandu, Nepal, and spend a lot of time trying to understand that process. And one of the things they do is they wash the body with water from the river, which they believe is holy water, and then um, they will anoint it with ghee or clarified butter. So they will use an oil, and the oil that they use is ghee. And then uh, with that uh, anointing, they will also uh, then put a, they will reach under um, the shroud, the, the saffron-colored shroud that covers the body, and they will put a white clothing on the body. And then it's prepared with flowers and honey and uh, uh, um, grains and other things, and it's put onto the, the um, uh, cremation beer. And the fires are lighted, and the cremation takes place. And it's the family that usually does a lot of that. But there is a Brahmin, 
a Brahmin, a priest, who uh, supervises. So anointing is not, it's not exclusive to us. And anointing the body, like the Egyptian Book of the Dead, right? That, that we anoint the, they anoint the eyes, they anoint the head, so you can think, you can see. They anoint your, the ears, so you can hear in the afterlife. They anoint the mouth, so you can speak, and the nose, so you can smell things in the afterlife. And other parts of the body, they're very specific about that. And so when we talk about anointing or, or wiping or polishing, um, this, is, this is not necessarily what we think it might mean within the LDS Church. I think in the Near East, Christ's body was anointed by the, the female, the women who attended him uh, and sought to use herbs and and it was and it was wrapped in a shroud and I mean there's sort of a clothing and a so I'm reminded of the fact that Jesus is the Messiah al Messiah in the Quran. He's all over the Quran. He's born of a virgin birth of Mary. There's an Annunciation, right? There's the birth. There's uh, infancy miracles like the ones we find in the infancy gospels, not part of our canon, but in our tradition that. He is considered the Messiah, that he will return again, that he'll be our judge. I know that in Latter-day Saint tradition, we, we speak of Scripture as having to testify of Christ, right? If, there's, if, if it testifies of Christ, it's Scripture, right? Isn't that the idea? And so, to me, that means the, the Quran is uh, Scripture, right? Yeah, why not? It's testifying of Christ very directly. And, you know... We don't have the chance right now to, because we're foc- I'm focusing this in a different way, but if we ever get back to the early New Testament in our Come, Follow Me, uh, I would like very much to talk about um, the uh, conception, the, the, what could be called an Annunciation, and so on and so forth, because for the Sufi, that does not take place on earth. That takes place in the divine presence. God does not come down the divine does not come down to earth to make that happen instead mary as a perfection of sufi life or mystical life as a perfection of internal purity and sainthood is in the words of paul taken up and and so we have some very particular thoughts on that and we we won't have time to go into them right now but uh, yeah i think you're right about a lot of this which is um I think for myself as a Sufi, I believe that this uh, happened at conception, right? That conception was the beginning of this journey of, of Jesus into life to, to become Christ. And I think he became Christ at that moment, too, in that he was, I think that was his anointing. Again, whether it's physical or not, anointing as in an initiation or an inauguration or a departure uh, for a very specific mission. Mary has it explained, as you know, in the Quran, that Jesus is given to humanity to be a grace and a mercy to us. Yeah, the Quran's very explicit that what is coming is grace. What is coming is mercy. And I think that that is there from before the things even, the whole process is put into place by conception. I guess the way I see this is Jesus had at least kind of two broad missions as a Sufi, the way I see it. One is to show us the way, which is kind of uh, the broad spiritual return path back to the divine. And how did he show us? Well, he did it. It's recorded in many cases, both in Scripture, we call the Bible or New Testament, and Gospels, 
but it's recorded. Uh, there's a lot of writings about Jesus in the ancient Near East that helped to shed light onto this that didn't make their way into the Bible. Uh, so the spiritual return path back to the divine. And he, his other mission was to open our spiritual imagination to truth, which I think he did a lot through parables. They aren't to be understood literally, and they aren't to be. They're, they're, we want to make them about doctrine and things like that, and maybe they are. I don't know. But the, as a Sufi, I want to make them about my spiritual path, the truth, as it unfolds to me from my soul and my experience and the divine. Uh, so it's it's an internal process, and uh, so I, I think that those two missions are what. Uh, me as a Sufi, I as a Sufi are going to uh, focus on. It sounds like there's a distinction to be made between what a what a church does, what an institution does. Not not really church. Church comes from ecclesia. It means gathering. That's the body of believers, right, in Christ or in whatever context. But the institution has what, boundary maintenance, power structuring, those kind of things as concerns, but those aren't our concerns as individual souls on a spiritual path. Right, exactly. As a, as a Sufi teacher, I've tried in all of our, our discussions and engagements to help you open yourself up to the path, not for me to tell you what the path is and what you have to do. That's not my place. It's your path. But I can walk with you on your path as best I know how. And by the way, walk my path at the same time. Right? You, our engagements enrich me. Our conversations here in our episodes enrich me. And so it's, it's sort of a beautiful relationship of liberation and freedom. Know the truth and the truth will make you free. And we think, well, that, that truth is, can be contained in an externalized object in which we all agree on that the words mean this or the words mean that. And I'm not saying that that's not valuable at a certain level, but I, I would say it's just a starting point, a point of departure, not an end that we, that we need to seek. And so for the Sufi, we don't trouble ourselves overly about it that. It occurs to me that as an individual soul on a spiritual path, that it's, it's as though I were, in a sense, at the center of my own spiritual universe, right? And with the universe having no center, what other center matters to me? There's no actual objective center to the universe, so it may as well be here, now, where I am. And that's, again, I'm thinking of personal relevance, right? What is it that's going to help me sort of, not just before I, before I, I walk the path, I have to, I have to find the path. I have to uh, take on, you know, how do you say, um, sometimes English words fail me. Uh, emprender. Uh, I, I don't know. The way I'm thinking of it is, is that you have to commit to it. You have to desire it. You have to move toward it and make it, make it work for you. And so um, it's take the first step on the path, I guess. I don't know. Is that Take what the first getting? step. That, that's something like emprender, right? It's to, to undertake walking down the path, right? To, to decide and to, to take that first step. Yeah, I think that um, the, the commitment 
has to be there to do it. And that commitment has to be refreshed and the commitment has to be renewed. And so I, I would say that's, that's very much how we would see that process unfold. And that until we make the commitment to take responsibility, as a Sufi, I'm, I'm going to say in my case and, and my, the case of the students I deal with, the first step is that we have to begin to accept responsibility for our own soul. So the, the first step is there's no one I can blame. There's, I can't blame Lucifer or Satan, some externalized devil. Uh, because that devil's powerless unless I make choices that empower that devil. Uh, it isn't God's responsibility to me either. God, I have agency, so God's not forcing me to do anything at all. And I have my own divine nature, a God within. And I have everything I need to go down that path, but I have to realize that I have to take responsibility for my soul and my spiritual progress. It occurs to me in this context that you know, when you say this, I think, well, I can't really do this alone. And, and so I think, you know, this is something I can do in Christ, right? And so then the meaning of Christ becomes as a model to follow. As he said, come follow me, right? So he's given me the way, right? So he is the way to me means not, uh, not to look to him in the sense of set him up as an idol to worship, but uh, to look to him as a guide, right? To, 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 as a model, someone to follow. I, I think that's very perceptive, certainly as a model. But we're going to use a lot of, of the ideas and concepts of the you know, monumental work of the Sufi, Muhyiddin Ibn al-Arabi, who uh, lived... I was born in Mercia, Spain, and lived in the 13th century, and, and just wrote, I mean, people will say we know of references to at least 400 books, and his Meccan revelations could take up entire shelves, and, uh, you know, it, it just a monumental Sufi and Sufi author who, when he was young, had to make the decision we're talking about. He had to decide to begin to walk this path. And he, he was attracted to the idea of it, but he wasn't sure how to go about doing it. But he was convinced that he couldn't do it on his own. And as he meditated, as he prayed, as he began to open himself up to the influence of the divine, he said he found his first teacher, and his first teacher was Jesus. He said very clearly, Jesus taught me the Sufi spiritual path. And, and that is an ongoing and active unfoldment. So it's not just a historical example that we can find in writing, but, but we can awaken within in us a true inspirational guidance where Jesus talks to our soul that is personalized to us. And, and that's what Muhyiddin Ibn al-Arabi said, my first master was Jesus, and he's not referring to reading scripture, he's referring to his deep spiritual experiences, personal experiences with Jesus Christ. He sounds like he had an experience like Paul's experience on the road to Damascus. It could have been. Yeah, he doesn't go into a lot of detail. He doesn't think that his life was, you know, that there was a problem with his life in particular. It's just it wasn't moving in a spiritual direction. And, but uh, uh, for him, 
curiously enough, it was Jesus. But this is a living tradition. You know, the whole idea of of a spiritual tradition is that it's it's a living wisdom tradition. It's a living guidance and teaching tradition. Um, and that's why the guide we have usually is a living guide. But there are guides who aren't living. Yeah. Now, presumably, he was raised a Muslim, right? Yes. Yes. And so you're saying he still has to make this choice, right? I was raised a Christian. I still have to make a choice, Correct. my own choice. My own soul has to choose to follow Jesus, to take him as my model, to walk with him, to follow him, to follow the way. Yeah, to, to receive. And so it's not a passive one way. It's not a, it's not a, and it's, there's no answer for anybody else. Really, it's because it's your answer. It's your question, it's your answer. And so the depth of this, um, for Sufis who choose Jesus as their, as the one that they, they look to for the guidance in extinguishing their ego, it's very profound. And we're going to talk about that process, I think, a little while later, but it, it, uh, it is a powerful and a very personal process. And so we often don't disclose exactly what it means because, it, there, A, there's not ever really a point to it. Um, and, but, but even if we try to talk about it, we just, we just have to realize we're, we're going to be uh, missing, missing the mark many times. And so it's, it's just personal. It's deeply spiritual. I think that Bernard of Clairvaux, St. Bernard of Clairvaux, had a lot of these... He wrote extensively about his interactions with Jesus on a personal level. That, 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 that what we might call a veil or something just was thinner or not there or whatever word we want to choose to express it. So, Okay, let's, uh, maybe we can move on um, to how Sufis see Jesus as a model mystic, but a model Sufi, they would say. And when we mean that, we're not really wanting to engage in historical arguments. Was, was he somehow really a closet Sufi? Or, you know, we get into all these things. Did he actually travel to India and that's where he learned all this stuff and came back? Or, you know, where did he get all of his ideas? And there's just all these discussions that go along with it. And for the Sufi, we don't care. Uh, because if you're a spiritual person, you don't have to go anywhere but inside. What occurs to me, you know, for many, uh, for, for many Muslims, and Ibn Arabi is a Muslim who's following Jesus, right? right? For many Muslims, they follow in the same way the Prophet Muhammad, right? Who's Correct. taken very much in the sense uh, that Jesus is as a perfect man, an, an insan al-kamil, right? This, this whole or perfect or complete human being who serves as a model to follow. And there again, I don't know that I don't think that's about a historical Muhammad either, right? This is uh, Muhammad as a as a model, right, to follow, and and you and I I see him function in the same way for Muslims as Jesus functions for Christians, right? As a as a model, as someone to follow. Correct, and and so the question becomes: Is this a model that we all have to follow? So we're going to say, you know, this is the Lord's pattern. I hear that a lot. Like the Lord's pattern. I'm going, he only has one. And so the question is, what's personal about that? I mean, in other words, it becomes an ethical sort of engagement in which I just say, well, you know, whatever, whatever I'm told 
is the Lord's pattern, then I have to figure out how to do it. And I'm not objecting to that as a process that can have spiritual benefit. But I'm saying there's something greater that awaits us when we take responsibility for our soul, in which case we find out how what Jesus said or what Jesus did as an exemplar means something in my life, how I can do it in my situation, how I can do it with my soul. And, and then it becomes a personalized journey, and Jesus ceases to be some external formalized guide or model, but becomes a living Jesus influence in our life. It occurs to me to mention, I guess probably for the nth time, one of my favorite Sufi uh, quotes, right, which is Rumi's, there are as many paths to God as there are people on earth. You know, when, when you say that there's not sort of one way, right, the, the, the one and only true and living way, right, on the face of the earth, then it just occurs to me that that uniformity isn't unity, right? That unity is something that if we're all seeking God, then we're unified in that way, right? Right. But we don't look the same. That's right. That's right. Unity and uniformity is, is a familiar trope also in Sufism, which is, uh, I know Hazri Naihan wrote a whole series of essays on unity and uniformity, and, and really you've picked the great, the, some great words for that, yeah. But we often like, we often feel that uniformity means we have unity. And uh, that doesn't always prove to be true, in fact, because it's, it's not really true. Our conceptualizations are ours, and so even if we use the same words, that doesn't mean that we're on the same page uh, in terms of what we think that really means. And it often comes out when somebody says something we don't like in Sunday school or something where they're, they're revealing that their way of engaging with this is different than our way of engaging with it. I'm usually the one making those revelations <laughs> in my Sunday school class. <laughs> when I dare raise my hand, I keep going. I, I always, I, this year I've been practicing let your communications be yay, yay, and nay, nay. I'm, I'm really trying to just shut up a lot of the time because whatever I have to say usually isn't what anybody wants to hear anyway. And probably I wouldn't want to hear it myself if I really thought about it. So I, I'm, kind of, I'm, I'm kind of a second-hour uh, body, I guess, you know, in a, lot of, in a lot of that. I love sacrament meetings quite a bit, but often I get into these uh, discussions in Sunday school and I'm just going, I, I'm really trying to figure out why I'm here. Um, I really love to talk about the scriptures, so I'm I'm really big on Sunday school. I I really miss I don't miss going to church for three hours necessarily, but I really miss Sunday school every week. You know, so it's every other week I'm really excited to go to Sunday school and and talk about the well, scriptures, even if, if we talk about the scriptures, uh, nobody wants to hear what I have to say, right? Right. If we, if we talk about the scriptures, and some do, by the way, I have I have a, a word where people are interested. Some people are interested in what I have to say. Well, then that's good. And, and uh, I often find that I already know someone who I can talk to and wants to talk to me, and so we, we talk someplace else. I don't just burden myself, burden the whole Sunday school with me. Uh, that's kind of how I look at it. And I, my comments can really distract from what the teacher's trying to do, and it's their lesson, and I need to respect that. So for me, it's more of a yay, yay, nay, nay kind of, kind of uh, commitment there. Uh, for me, it's sort of like group-free association therapy. Something is mentioned, and we just kind of unload ourselves as to what our thoughts are or feelings are on a certain subject. It's not to say that they aren't valid or, or valuable, 
but uh, it seems to to have some sort of other purpose to me rather than than uh, spiritual enlightenment scripture study, and that may be my problem. It occurs to me that the value may be in finding well it's there is a negative sense in which it can be a lot like what we see on social media these days where you just find people to agree with you right and and we we seek just that everybody's going to be in agreement and that to me again means uniformity right um i don't think that you have to be in agreement on everything to be in unity in fact i know you don't because i i've experienced it right that you can be in in unity without even well, as you've pointed out, ultimately really knowing what's what the contents of others' minds are. I don't have any access to that whatsoever. Even if, they, even if uh, some of those contents spill out of their mouths, I still don't, as you've pointed out. Correct, because we put it into words. So, you know, what do those words really mean? I do like this about Sunday school. I'm going to say this. I, I begin to gain a sense of where these people feel they are spiritually and get a, f- a sense of where they feel, not my judgment, but where they feel they are spiritually and where they, they w- would like to go or what their aspirations are. That sort of is interesting, but a lot of times it has nothing to do with the Scripture in question or whatever. And, uh, so I'm just saying uh, the, the group activity needs to be of a different kind of spiritual quality, I suppose, and that's what Sufis try to achieve in, in a lot of their group gatherings. And yet... We're saying the spiritual path is an individual one. Correct. Well, the community action is to help us on the spiritual path, to help walk it with each other. But it's, it's still the individual's path. We, we, we're just kind of there together trying to make a difference. And so we, we, we wouldn't delude ourselves into believing that, that I'm creating some kind of spiritual path for somebody else, that instead we're all together trying to make it make it work for each other to support and there is tremendous value in that community oh sure i'm sure we're very much you know in the sufi invocation that we have it's uh we we say uh, together with all the illuminated souls who form the embodiment of the master the spirit of guidance we're kind of the embodiment of this guidance that among us there is a guidance going on it is more than any individual one path. But we know that ultimately the effect of it has to be on each individual path. So we do believe in all the illuminated souls, the ones that are on the path. Are you saying something like the sum is greater than the, the parts? Like a synergy can be. Uh, you know, I, I tend to think of it as that it's experienced within each of us as we're with the community. So. Again, we can all be gathered together and going through a similar experience uh, externally, an activity of some sort, but that internally it's, it can be quite a different experience. I tend to think of the sacrament, because I, I don't know about anybody else, but from what I hear, they're probably a lot like me, which is I'm not always present when the sacrament goes around. I'm not always there in that ritual we're all doing. We're all doing it, but but... I get the feeling when I, when, I, when I have a spiritual presence there that it becomes an entirely new thing. And so we can all be participating in an activity that is designed to be profound spiritually, but we're, we're not all participating in the same way, and it doesn't all apply to our path. 
the application I get out of it may be what I need to be thinking of or doing. And so uh, I need to be proactive in preparing for those rituals so that when, when I participate, I can be, be present in soul as well as mind and heart. So do, I, I don't know if that helps. I'm reminded of an experience I had in my elders quorum meeting last week where we were talking about this distinction that, we, that you and I have made from Paul's teachings, right, between the, the dead letter, right, and the living word of God, which is something that's in us. And so I found myself in a position where I was the teacher, who's the, our elders quorum teacher, who's the institute teacher, he's my daughter's institute teacher, saying, well, Christopher said something, and, and he was saying that he got something that was this living word of God. And I thought, well, that can't be from me. That has nothing to do with me. And so it's, I just said words, right? And those are, right. they may as well be a dead letter, right? They're not no different from the words on the page and in, in the sacred text that we have. Uh, and they, and yet they work the same way for him. It's something I said sparks something of the divine in him. Right? And so he has this, this living word in his own heart that, somehow came about because of something I said, but that doesn't mean it's what I said. Right. It could be many other things. It's, it could be what he was prepared for. Uh, it could be a question or an issue in his soul, and I would call those soul resonances. You get a deep vibration down in your being. But then what you do with that is up to you personally. I mean, what that means to you and, and how you live that way it has to be in your context, uh, it has to be within your life, it has to be within your needs, and so you're back to the individual. So there can be these beautiful moments of deep spiritual resonance. And the same goes for reading the scriptures, right? It's, I'm reading, and something resonates with me, something awakens in my own heart, something of the divine communicates through me and it's not the words on the page it's something else and it's very personal yeah we would say soul resonance something deep inside of you is adopting if you will a vibration that 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 this is sending to your soul and you begin to resonate with it and then of course we talk about attunement now that I feel that resonance, I, I'm going to bring my spiritual and all my life into line with that resonance. That I, I had a truth disclosed to me for me, and now I need to find a way to attune myself, right? The resonance has a frequency, we'd say a pitch, so to speak, but, but we don't mean that literally. But it has a, it has a frequency to it and a unique uh, approach to things. And so our, our way of dealing with that would say, now, how do I attune my life to that resonance. And, and uh, so resonance and attunement is very much a Sufi concept there. Now, I've listed several ways in which uh, Jesus' missions, uh, so to speak, do, that we uh, follow them as Sufis, right? One of them is the way. The other is the truth. But the truth I want to go into a little deeper here, and we've been talking about it with soul resonance, which is when we uncover Jesus in word or example, and it resonates with us, then the attunement of our life is, is it metaphorically dying to an older way of living. 
Paul would use a phrase like die in Christ, that we, we die in Christ. And so we could see that as I'm dying as to the way I used to do things because I, I have learned a new way of living and that I want to follow that way of living that resonates with my soul. I want to attune my life now to that way of living. And, and this is, I think, what he might, Paul might mean, well, or Muhammad meant when he said, die before you die. In other words, die to your ego life. Die to all the things that hold you back, that you, th- th- so that when you're physically dead, you've accomplished more with this life. And why? Because as we do that, we learn how to live. So as I die to my old man, so to speak, I learn how to live in Christ as a new man. So I think all of this is very much Paul trying to understand what is the truth that's disclosed to me by Jesus? Well, I may not be able to put it into words. I, I, I just, I know what it is. I, I felt the resonance. And that resonance is important to me, and I want to attune my life to that resonance. Let's uh, talk for a minute, if we can, on, on characteristics of Jesus and names of Jesus among Sufis. How Sufis view this model, if you will. Uh, let's deal with the characteristics first. Sufis deal with uh, a number of characteristics. Each of them have an Arabic name for them, but we're, we can deal, we can mention those and then deal with them in English. But um, I would say, I would remind us that Joseph Smith said, if you would know God, you must know the character of God. Now, some people think that means you must know that God has a body. In fact, Joseph Smith would have said, did say that. And, but, uh, but I would say, well, there's a deeper meaning of the character of God, uh, of mercy and grace and of love. And of, there's all of these other ones that really you can't write down in a book or on a chalkboard. They're, they're incapable because I have to learn them deep in my soul. I, I can talk about them, but that's just chit-chat until it becomes a soul activity. I'd like to go through some of those. Uh, you know Arabic very well, so uh, let's uh, jump in if you want to do that. Well, the first characteristic that Sufis recognize in Jesus has the Arabic word zuhd. So it means renunciation of worldly affairs. Any thoughts on, on the word or what well, it might I think, mean? I think of asceticism. I think of Socrates, and Socrates doesn't look like Jesus other than other than his renunciation of worldly affairs, other than his seeking and teaching of wisdom. I mean, I guess he starts to look like Jesus in a lot of ways, right? He actually does. Yeah. yeah. And I know that, you know, we don't really know, we, we only know of Socrates from Plato and others. And as a matter of fact, everyone has their own Socrates, which makes him a lot like God, right? Everyone has their own conception of God. Uh, we say that uh, we've, we've talked about the God ideal, right? But yeah, but yeah, this idea of, I think of also of, of Buddhism, you know, when I hear renunciation of worldly affairs, the idea is that, that we be, how about in the world, but not of the world. I think it's a great way to put it. I remember you telling me that you were told those exact words outside of a Latter-day Saint context. Will you share that again? Oh, Absolutely. This was in about 2011. 
Uh, I taught in 2010 for uh, two semesters at the University of Delhi in India under a Fulbright Department of State grant. And the whole time I was there, I wanted to learn about Sufis, uh, especially the Sufis, the Sufi group known as the Chishtiyas. That really appealed to me. So I was always looking for an opportunity, and I was referred to one in particular named Salman Chishti. So when I came back in 2011, I traveled to where he is in the city of Ajmer in Rajasthan, in India, and stayed in his house for almost a week. Very beautiful experience. And uh, we are soul brothers, and we knew it from the moment we each pronounced each other's name. Hello, David. Hello, Salman. It was already, we're connected. And uh, I interviewed him. And I said, can you kind of sum up how Sufis engage with the necessary worldly activities we have? I mean, of, of being able to live and being able to provide and the things that are common to human beings, raising a family, how they do that. And he said, well, I will tell you simply, we must learn to be in the world, but not of the world. <laughs> of course, I was almost floored by that, right? I mean, I, I don't know how many times I'd heard that in a talk or something at church. And but they know they know that truth. I mean, it's very tricky as to how you do it. And the ego will convince us we're doing it when we're not. It will provide all the excuses to say, oh, oh, you're okay. Oh, you're fine as you are. Oh, you don't. Why are you worried about that? Uh, and, and there's just a number of ways of saying, well, owning another truck is not a big deal or a car or whatever it is. Or owning another house. Why? I mean, owning a cabin doesn't mean I'm getting attached to things in the world and, you know, or whatever. And I, I don't have any answers for how somebody else should live. But the ego can convince us that, you know, what we once thought was the way I should be living in the world, but not of the world, may not be what it really is. And now I can, you know, open myself up a little more to living in the world. I always think in terms of, uh, well, I'm with you, first of all, I wouldn't say what it looks like to be in the world and not of the world means X, Y, Z, right? A, B, C, one, two, three, you can't do this, you can't do that. But I would say, I think you, you can't really have too much stuff unless the stuff has you. That's the problem, right? If, if the stuff has you, that's different than you having stuff. Uh, there's this idea of stoic indifference of, okay, I have this and that's fine, you know, but I don't, depend on it it's my my happiness doesn't depend on it my spirituality certainly doesn't depend on it as long as i have it fine but if i lost it it's just not that important right you're willing to walk away from it you know and uh i i think that there's something about that that has a spiritual quality but the only person who can determine what the line or the boundary for that is is the the individual so i often want to get something or buy something, I think, oh, this would be very great for what we do. This is the ideal thing for where we're at and how we want to live. And then a voice goes off of me. And often my wife helps me with this more than anything. She's, isn't that a little bit much? I mean, do you, do you look at what, what, how our life is going to change in order to have that thing, or how we're going to have to work more, whatever, how we're going to not be able to spend on other goals or save or whatever it is. And, uh, and so this living in the world, not of the world, I don't really think can be reduced to a chart of things. I think, it's, I think that uh, we are much better about talking about sexual sin and what it is than we are talking about uh, greed and, and covetousness and, and avarice and sort of the deeper problems of where does the boundary actually lie between what I want to do and what the sin is. And, and so... 
money and possessions is one of those areas. And I love the word possession because I wonder what's possessing what <laughs> or who. Right. That, that's what I'm getting at. What's possessing what? So it's, there's no sort of black and white. Uh, this is the rule to follow. And this is very much like many of our conversations in Sufism, right? Is that it's, it's really about asking the soul and being honest with ourselves, right? With our souls and, and not, having, not being led by ego, not having the ego be the one to answer the question. Correct. And that's tricky because it's easy to fool ourselves. And that's why often when you work with a guide, the guide will listen to things and maybe ask a question. Are you saying that so you feel better about how you feel? Are you saying that because you're convinced of it? Are you saying it because you're nervous that it's not true and you want, you know, why, you're bringing this up. Why are you bringing this up? I'm going to put you on the spot, Master. Okay. Because I know some have, you know, it's been hinted or stated, you know, oh, uh, he's a Sufi master and he drives a BMW. And I would like you to respond to that. And it's not an apology, right? It's, but uh, tell me what, what it is you say to well, people who say it's that. Con- it's a convertible, no less. That's right, a convertible. The, you remind me of the, the monk who drove a Ferrari by Robin Sharma, right? Yeah, Zen in the art of motorcycle maintenance, meaning, you know, like, put me on my hog and I'm, I'm off. And, you know, uh, so, yeah, I was looking for a car. It was during COVID. My wife was uh, staying with one of our children who needed her children to be babysat the, during the COVID illnesses and so she could work. And she was gone five, six days a week for, you know, like a year and a half. And, of course, she had to take the car with her when she, she went. She, she drove from Rexburg to Salt Lake and stayed in Taylorsville. And I'm going, well, what am I doing now? I was entombed in my house. We started looking, and and I said, well, I could have a Hyundai, you know, but that's $20,000 for a car I don't want. Or I could have, you know, whatever, these kinds of cars. I was looking for the cheap little whatever runaround car. And I was meeting with one of my students in Boise. And at any rate, I I walked out of his, his office where we had met, and there was this uh, BMW for sale. And he says, wouldn't you like that? And I go, I've always wanted to own a car as good as a BMW. How could I possibly afford it? Doesn't it seem a little too ostentatious? And he said, look, this is a, a 2011. It's 10 years old. And uh, it's going on 10 years old. And it has 36,000, 37,000 miles on it. We're taking really good care of it. Um, it's uh, $13,000. I'm going... Well, I could go buy that other car I really don't want for $23,000. Or I can drive this car that's well-machined and it will maintain itself. And, and besides, it's a, I love to drive out in nature to Yellowstone Park nearby where I live or the Grand Tetons and put that top down and just take it in. I call it my old man's motorcycle. Uh, I'm too old to balance myself on a motorcycle, but that's not a problem for my car. And I do try to take care of it and keep it up and everything else. So... I, I was comfortable with that, not because it was a BMW, uh, uh, probably because it was a convertible. I, I did like that part, I do have to mean. But I felt that I, was not, that I needed a car, and this was a really great car for what I needed, and that I actually spent less money. And, and you know, I don't try to show it off, but I do try to share it with my friends. I don't try to say, oh, lucky me, you know, you're driving your poor piece of junk, and 
but you could have one of these. That's not how I do it, and I only drive it in the summers and things for weather here. But so that's my way I went through it. Now, could someone say I was wrong, that I'm in the world and not of the world? Uh, possibly. But I, I did my thinking and praying and meditating on this, and I go, I need another vehicle. I'm trapped in Rexburg winters, and we don't call it Rexburg, my wife and I, we call it Iceberg. I'm trapped in iceberg winters, and I, I, I'm going crazy. I need to buy groceries, or I need to, I can't get out of my house. So that's how, but, but to me, that's how I did it. So what do you think? You can respond to that. Did I go too far? Is it, is BMW brand name mean that I somehow was in the world more, or uh, a convertible, or... Let, let me check here in the in the canon, you know, the the right chapters and verses <laughs> for that. You know, my experience of of you when you came to visit me and my family was you wanted to make sure that all of my children had an opportunity to ride in the convertible with the top down. That's right. I love sharing it with them. And I love putting on some good rock and roll. My favorite song for driving in that thing with the top down and really enjoying it is Highway Star by Deep Purple. You know, nobody's going to take my car. I'm going to drive it to the ground. You know, nobody's going to take my car. I'm going to break the speed of sound. Ooh, it's a killing machine, right? It's just because it was fun and they were laughing and we were sharing and we just enjoyed our time together. And, and I just thought, I, lo- I love kids. And then we got where we were going and we parked it yeah. and we forgot about it and we mm-hmm. continued to share. We went to the mission in Santa Barbara. I had never been there before. We walked the I path. didn't realize that. Yeah, we walked the path of the rosary. Do you remember that? I do. Uh, well, the Stations of the Cross, I should say. We walked the path of the Stations of the Cross, which is outdoors in that particular, in a garden. And uh, I remember reading one of the prayers of the Stations of the Cross and that I hugged you and I told you I loved you because I needed to say that. and. There was no BMW with me. Uh, I don't know if you know some of the stories about Zen monks. There's a story of the Zen monk and his, his disciple, and they're traveling from shrine or temple to temple, and you'd spend the night in the temple. And they're on their way. They're going through a town, and it's been raining a lot. And, of course, this is like 18th, 19th century. The streets are muddy. They're filthy. It's just terrible. And there's a geisha on the corner of one of the streets who wants to get to the other side of the street. So the older monk, the master, goes up and he picks her up and puts her on his back and carries her over to the other side and sets her down and makes sure she's okay, and then they walk. Well, when they reach that night, they reach the temple, the disciple just can't contain it anymore. And he says, you know, we're supposed to have nothing to do with women. We're not even supposed to touch them, especially beautiful women like a geisha. And he went on and on. And finally, the disciple said, you know, I left her back there. Why are you still carrying her? Oh, <laughs> yeah. You know, I, that reminds me of another story I would love for you to share. I, I can't remember it well enough to share it myself. It's from the Conference of the Birds by Fariduddin Attar, right? Another Sufi right. poet. And that's the one where, where the sheikh goes off after a woman, right? Right. And his disciples, I don't remember the story, they, they, sh- they stay away from him because he's gone off after the woman. And what's right. the lesson they learn? Well, <laughs> I don't, I don't want to go deeply in the story, but for me the lesson is, is why is he doing this? We don't know why he's doing this. And, and maybe it's to bless the woman or maybe it's to, uh, 
you know, did, did you get something different out of that story? Well, I got that the disciples were to follow the master and that it wasn't, I guess it's not up to them whether he's gone astray. Right. And, and even if he had gone astray, I think this is something I got from it that's really important. Mm. Why did they abandon him? Yeah. It, it, this is like the idea that the, the Holy Ghost is going to abandon you uh, when you need the Holy Ghost the most. I see what you're getting at, which is, right? it, to me, it was their judgment that led them wrong, right? In other words, the fact that they decided that they could judge this master um, is going to lead them astray. From, I guess I made that. Lead. But, but you're taking it to another step. Well, that's probably because I made the same mistake they did. I, I judged the master. I, I assumed... I'm getting now that I assumed that I knew why he was going after the woman. Right. And so my lesson came later. Okay, let's say he did do that. Well, why would you abandon your friend? Why would you abandon your teacher, your master? Why wouldn't you love him back rather than rejecting him, judging him, and think that somehow that's going to bring him back? Well, or that it's going to keep you safe, right? Because our job is to um, stay away from evil people, which we do get from pseudo-Paul, but right. we never actually get from Paul, and we certainly don't get from Jesus. And Jesus' whole project, his whole life, is hanging out with people you're not That's supposed right. to hang out with. Uh, prostitutes, tax collectors, you know, I mean, on and on. Samaritans Eating. at a well. Why are you here at the well? You know, your people have nothing to do with me. And he's kind of saying, I don't think you know why I'm here, frankly. Eating with the wrong people, right? Yep. The wrong food, the wrong, the wrong food. That's right. <laughs> Touching people you're who you're not supposed to touch. Yep, yep, yep. The the whole uh, I call, I like how Houston Smith put it. He said he called it the Pharisees' holiness project. That it, it it was about all the things you don't do and and you know if you do the right dance steps you're in to heaven or whatever. They don't really talk about heaven and Phariseeism. That's more of a Christian conceptualization. But, but anyway, my, my, my point there is uh, if Jesus doesn't say what you want, you leave. I, I call that spiritual hokey pokey. Ah, yeah. You yeah. do the hokey pokey and you turn yourself around and. That's you're what in it's heaven. all about, Trout. <laughs> and so, yeah, it's. Uh, and, and I guess what we're saying is we have a tendency to reduce everything to form and externality. And then we try to convince each other we're, supposed to, we're all supposed to be doing it the same way. And I don't know there's anything wrong with the desire to find some kind of uniform culture or to create a culture that's more spiritual. I think that could be fine. But what about the people that don't fit into that culture? You know, what about the people that we're not going to let into that culture? Uh, you know, someone I remember, they didn't want him in our sacrament meeting, and I happened to know who the person was, and I was in the bishopric. I was 24 years old, believe it or not way too young to be doing the, the kind of things I was called upon to do. I, I, I just was, I felt totally out of my league. But um, this person, I knew who he was uh, from my youth, and he was older now and kind of broken, and he reeked of cigarette smoke and everything else, and he, and he needed a place to sit down. And I just find that the people, well, oh, oh, you know, he smells and all the rest of it. And we go, well, he sure does. But guess what? He's here. You know, he's here. And so... His name was Ivan. He cut hair at the old Union Pacific Station when it was still a burgeoning railroad station. I used to walk there with my cousins from my grandma's, and we'd, we'd sometimes get a haircut and uh, talk to Ivan, and uh, we'd buy a couple of comic books, maybe get a candy bar, re- go back, read our comics, and trade them. And he, I just had this beautiful vision of Ivan. That was my vision of him. Uh, not, not 
a, an older, somewhat perhaps, I don't want to say broken, but in, in, in any sense, but I want to say somebody who's been through some trials. And maybe I did the right thing, and maybe I'm judgmental in other ways. You know, I mean, I have to watch myself, but I, I'm just kind of going, if, we, if the culture excludes, then I think there's a problem. If the culture includes, then I think we are inviting all to Christ. Right. We can't say I'm, we're inviting all to come to Christ and then say, but not you. You're out. Because you don't fit the culture we've created for all of the followers of Christ. All those who are invited. And who did Jesus invite to his wedding banquets? Remember, the, you know the parable of the wedding banquet where the wedding feast? And none of the, none of the important people in, in Jesus' culture would come. So he sent the servants back out in the street and said, bring me all the people that need a meal or whatever. You know, he said, go out and collect them. And many shall come from the east to the west and sit at the table of Abraham. I'm not, I'm not interested in rank or priority. They were invited. They don't want to come? Okay. But it's their exclusion, not his exclusion. The invitation was sent to everybody. And he wants a banquet where all are welcome. That, what you said when you, when you mentioned the East and the West, it reminded me of Surat An-Nur, the, the light verse, one of the most mystical verses in the Qur'an, which if, you, if the listener hasn't heard it, you know, just, to, just to read it, just to hear it, it's, you may not know what's going on, but, but you feel, you, you sense that there's something going on in this verse. And part of it says, a blessed olive tree, neither of the East nor of the West. Mm. And that just came to my mind. Oh, it's beautiful. East and West shouldn't even matter. What, what do they matter? Why, why, why would we care? What we're looking for is so beautiful in so many other ways. Well, that reminds me of the whirling dervishes, right? Who are turning, turning, turning. And we can think of turning as repentance, too. And we can think of them, as we've mentioned in previous episodes, or at least a previous episode, of turning in all directions. and really finding God, because there is nowhere you can turn, you don't find God. That's right. The consciousness of that fact, which means the Holy Spirit doesn't leave the room. The more we need the Holy Spirit, I'm convinced, so to speak, that the more it's present, the more it yearns to help us, the more God's love wants to reach out for us, the more God looks at our, our misery, often self-created, or looks at our conditions, and the more God says, I need to be with you. So I need you to turn around and see I'm here. And uh, this is the Rumi poem of knocking from the inside. We think it's out there someplace, and Rumi's just saying, no, no, you got to learn to knock from within. Because your pain or your suffering or your sorrow is within. And you have a soul, and you have a connection to God. Why, why not pick up the phone that's already built into you, so to speak? You know, I, I came with that metaphor. <laughs> you know, Master, as a deeply flawed human being, I know as human beings we're all flawed. I consider myself a deeply flawed human being. That message speaks such hope to my soul. You're not deeply flawed. I feel that too myself sometimes. And... A lot of times, it started when I was very young, for nothing I did. And, but you carry the shame for the rest of your life. Someone placed the shame upon you, and you, you can't shake it, and you feel you're broken. And uh, I think many of us have these sorts of things. And so the fact that the invitation is there, and it's inside of you, is such a beautiful thought that you can't run away from God. No one can. 
Not even Lucifer can run away from God, uh, or, or Satan, or whatever name we're going to use. So, Can I share another Sufi story? Go for it. There's the story, this is from, I love reading the stories of Nasruddin. Ah, Nasruddin, I love it. Nasruddin, they're such fun stories. And in this particular story, I remember a Sufi master tells his disciples to take uh, a lamb and go slaughter it where no one can see them, right? Uh-huh. And they all go off, and, you know, one comes back still with the lamb, and the rest have slaughtered the, their lambs. And the master asks him, what happened? And he says, I, I couldn't find anywhere where God couldn't see me. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly correct. We're always seen even when we use our ego to hide ourselves. Even when we discover our nakedness, we decide, ah, fig leaves, that's the answer. I've got right. it. <laughs> I've got it. <laughs> I finally figured it out. Fig leaves. Fig leaves. Solves whatever the problem. They, yeah, that's, and so it, hiding our nakedness is a natural tendency for all of us, but then we realize that God not only sees, but he loves us. He, doesn't, he isn't interested in saying, oh, I see that you're naked, so I'm going to smack you around. Right? If we're proud, sometimes we need smacking around. But if it's just that we made a mistake and we're, we're shamed, that's when God wants to show us and love us and help us. Otherwise, what kind of a God are we believing in? Are you saying there's, there's something, uh, there's a level of pride at which I might get actually get smacked around by God? If you haven't had it right now, I can tell you about some of mine, and that, that's a discussion for another day, but I've had, I've had times in my life where the lesson has been brutal. It's been painful, and it lasts throughout my life, and I thank God that I had the lesson. You go read uh, the Rumi poem that Coleman Barks translated called Jesus on the Lean Donkey, and it's about a Sufi master giving some a beating. And when they realized what was happening, they loved them. They said, thank you. Mm. But when it was going on, nobody wanted to get a beating. I'm reminded of my honors sociology professor, whom I hated all semester long. This is as an undergraduate. And after I had worked so hard, because there was no other way I could do well in that class, and I was determined to do well in all of my classes, and I got that A, and boy, was I grateful. Uh, I, I felt like I had learned so much, and I was so grateful to her. Uh, I hated her every step of the way until it was over. That's right. And I still, I'm still grateful for her, grateful to her to this day. Absolutely. For the, the trial that that was. A teacher could just turn away from a student. A teacher could just say, why, why bother with this person? I've got other things, other projects to do. And uh, I felt that way about a professor I had at the master's level who, this is in the days of typewriters. He was throwing chapters of my thesis away when I gave them to him to review. He said, they're a waste of my time. I'm going to teach you how to write a sentence, and I want you to start over again. Well, I need those papers. He goes, oh, no, you don't. You're not going to fix this. You're going to learn this. And was there anger on my part? Absolutely. I remember walking down the hall one day and I go, who does he think he is? And then I thought, oh, that's so-and-so. 
who has a doctorate from the University of Munich and a master's degree from Heidelberg, who is the editor of the International Journal of Middle East Studies, who does research in nine major languages and 19 sublanguages, who I, I thought, oh, that's who he is. <laughs> and all of a sudden, you know, so that question, who do you think you are, just flew right back in my face. And then I said, you know, maybe I need to learn something here. And, and for once it worked, but it was hard. He, he knew me well enough. To, he was kind of like a professor Sufi master. To throw it away and say, this is junk. He could have passed me on. He could have just sent me down the, the process, rid himself of me forever. But I now say I thank God for the day he first noticed me. He cared about me enough to correct me. Let's do some more uh, of, uh, of these characteristics of Jesus. Uh, one of them is, uh, is tajrid, which means spiritual divesting and freedom, giving up the things that attach us and learning to live free in them. And, and uh, this is the process whereby spiritual divesting, giving up our pet spiritual projects or religious themes that we think have to be talked about incessantly in priesthood meeting or Sunday school or relief site or whatever, giving, giving up and saying, you know, it's just not really that important. It's not important where the ten tribes are and how they're coming back or whatever it is we've decided to take up as our project. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. So spiritual divesting, I, I don't need to be caring about my about this aspect of my life to the point where it distracts me from more important things. Spiritual divesting and freedom, and Jesus had this. He combined it with uh, siyaha, or itinerant wandering. Oh, siyaha, itinerant wandering. I, I have this characteristic of, of Jesus. <laughs> you know, I thought siyaha I learned as an Arabic student as uh, tourism, right? And so I, I love traveling. I mean, this is just traveling and touring and visiting, right? Uh, and I do feel like I am a wanderer. Not, and not all who wander are lost. Wasn't it Tolkien who said that? I just like to wander. Well, but we don't look at this as, as wandering uh, only. It's, it, it, it's that we are not attached to a particular place and that... This would be Jesus when he says, you know, foxes have their holes and sparrows have their nest or birds have their nest. But the son of what man has nowhere to, to lay his head. Mm. There's, there's a story of Jesus just finding a place to lie down and sleep. And, and he had just been talking about re- getting rid of our attachment to possessions, not being, not being too much in the world. And he took a rock and made his pillow out of it in the story, laid his head on it. And one of his detractors said, ah, but you have to have a rock. You know, don't tell me about possessions. You have a rock. You have a stone. And so Jesus got up and took the stone over and put it at the guy's feet. And he said, okay, there's the stone. And went back and he laid down. He was just going, you know, I mean, he, he, did, he never stayed in one place. Why? Because he was needed someplace. I think when you travel, knowing you, Christopher, you often have a spiritual purpose for what you're doing. You're not just going to be a pure tourist. And we talked about this last spring in April when I went to Spain and Portugal with some friends, that I was going to see the places where St. John of the Cross, the great mystic, was, and his teacher, Teresa of Avila, and Ibn al-Arabi, and uh, Moses Maimonides uh, from the Jewish tradition, and, and, and all of these things. For me, it was... I went to uh, Holy Week. I went to the Madrugada and the, the midnight Holy Week in, in Seville again. And, and 
and took in all of the spirituality that I could from all of that. And so, sure, I'm seeing all these incredible sights. Well, Southern Spain was my mission. It's not like I haven't seen them before, but 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 it was I wasn't there to just see this really cool castle. And I think you're that way too, that you have a spiritual experience when you travel and, and there's a reason why you're going and you meet people that change your life and you you there's that it's I would call this uh, the person who does this, one of the names we use in Sufism is Musafir. Musafir is the one who is is the traveler, right? Is uh, they go on, as we would say, literally on safari, but we don't mean it in the common sense. We just say uh, there's a there's a story I want to tell about this that might bring us home, and and, and it involves the the title given to some Sufis, Kalandar. Kalandar uh, refers to a certain group of Sufis in South Asia, and there is the Kalandaria, which is an order of Kalandars. And I knew this gentleman. I met him in Ajmer when I was at Salman's another time. And, and uh, we used to be the old man on the porch. In, in India, people don't sit on chairs normally. They'll sit on a carpet or the ground or whatever. But chairs are all, but, but when you get old, you've got to sit on a chair. You know, cause, or you may never give up, get up. We were the old men on the chairs on the porch, and we greet people as they go by. And I don't know a lot of Urdu, and he didn't know any English, really. And... Um, so I asked what his name was, Kalandar, and I was trying to just kind of get to know him. And we were just enjoying being there. We didn't have to do anything in particular. And uh, Kalandar had pulled out this little uh, container of, of sandalwood oil, which they loved to groom their beards and their hair with. A lot of Sufis in, in, in that part of the world will smell of sandalwood oil. It's beautiful, but that's what he did. And he had hair and a beard, and he's putting all the sandalwood oil on that. He puts his hat back on. And he realizes, I don't have any sandalwood oil. So he looks over at me, and there's a little left in his container, and he puts it out on there, and he lifts off my hat, and he looks at my bald head. And you know me, my head is bald. I don't have alopecia, but I might as well. My head is bald. And he looked at that, and he wasn't sure what to do. And I didn't have a beard of any kind at that time. So he kind of rubbed it around on my head and on my face, and he picked up my hat and he put it back down and he shrugged his shoulders like, I did what I could for you, brother. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I, I tried. So we became friends, although we couldn't communicate with each other in a normal way. We had to take a journey to, to uh, Delhi at one point, uh, and he came along on the journey because he was going to go to a different shrine. These Kalandars wander from shrine or temple to temple, and they live there for a while, and they, they will do practices, but they, they are foxes without holes and birds without nests. And, and so we went on this trip, and we stayed in a hotel. When we finally got there, I needed about six hours of good sleep before I got on a plane and started a, like a 32-hour journey back to the United States. So we're in the outskirts of Delhi, and we get this hotel, and of course, they want all your passports. And for Indian citizens, they want their papers, their ID cards or whatever they are as Indian citizens. So I gave my passport and everybody else gave anything. Well, Kalanders don't have papers. And the, the person there at the desk started asking things like, uh, well, when were you born? And he'd shrug. <laughs> I don't know. Where were you born? I don't know. I think it was uh, in the British state. He was born before the Rajasthan. He was born like in the 1920s or 30s or something. Uh, 
I don't, I don't know. Uh, and one of the other people say, well, today it's Pakistan, but that border didn't ex- exist before. And he ignored the borders. He didn't borders. So what? I have a spiritual mission to fulfill and I'm just going to go do it. And it was, they had the hardest time trying to identify him because he didn't have any external identifiers. And that is exactly what the point of a Kalanda is being, that you, you lose your identifiers and you no longer say, I am this, I'm a plumber, an electrician, a professor, or whatever. You lose all of that. That doesn't mean you don't do plumbing or you don't do electrical or you don't teach at a university or whatever, which means you don't identify with that. You discover your soul and you don't, you're not attached to the world because you don't own a thing. And so Jesus was like this. He didn't like to keep the money. Judas kept the purse. You know, yeah, go Caesar, give it to Caesar. I don't know what to do with it. And I don't care what to do with it because I want to give something to God. I'm not interested in any of that. So we see in Jesus this real preference for poverty over wealth, or fakr is the word in Arabic. And, and, and his whole, so, I mean, Sufis look at this and they go, would to God that I could be like Jesus. So the path for them, the way for them, is that way of spiritual divestment, freedom, renunciation of worldly affairs. We don't know Jesus by his job. We say he's a carpenter, but we have no idea what that meant or if he actually ever did any carpentry. He was the son of a carpenter. Any rate, so those are the characteristics of Jesus and examples of them. And he really, the Kalandars remind me of Jesus. I'm reminded of a quote. It's a, an Arabic saying. I'll translate it into English. It says, the son of a duck is a floater. <laughs> so presumably Jesus knew how to do carpentry, but that, I don't know that that means that he did it, right? Yeah. Uh, and as for me, you know, I was just trying to carve myself out a little niche where I could be Christ-like. I, I do think, you know, I do travel. I don't feel like I belong in any sense. I'm not saying I don't have worldly attachments. I do have worldly attachments. And, and my wife always wants me to come home for some reason, usually only after I've been gone a few months, though. And I do <laughs> seek, you know, I seek beauty. I seek to meet people, as you pointed out. I do seek to learn about different cultures and religions. And I'm always visiting, you know, there some of them are pilgrimages because there are places that I know of, that I've studied, that have some kind of meaning to me. And then I get to go there in person, right? And so I, I would consider those pilgrimages. And they're usually religious sites, you know, whether they be, on my last trip, I visited great mosques, you know, from important mosques in history, whether in, in Cordoba or in in Morocco, in Tangier, uh, the, the Caspa, you know, mm-hmm. and tombs of people like Ibn Battuta, who was a great traveler. I was called Ibn Battuta, Ibn Battuta Dars, you know, the, the Ibn mm-hmm. Battuta of the class in grad school it. because of my travels. And, you know, places like the cathedral in Seville, which was also a mosque, and I'm there looking at both, right? I, if, if you look at my pictures, the pictures I took, uh, from from that cathedral, which used to be a mosque, you would see, oh, Christopher's visiting the largest Gothic cathedral in the world. Right. right? And then if you keep looking at my pictures, all of a sudden it looks like Christopher's now visiting a, a medieval mosque. Right. And it turns out Christopher hasn't left the building. He's in the <laughs> right. same place. He's just focusing in a different way yeah. and taking those pictures now. Well, in other words, uh, it's a spiritual journey for you. It's not 
there's something more going on there uh, beyond tourism. And, it uh, is. And so the reason I mentioned what I mentioned, because as a Sufi master, what I'm doing is when you're talking about your trips and things, I'm hearing a spiritual journey. I'm hearing personal connections. I'm hearing, and so that becomes a part of my kind of awareness of maybe ways in which I can you know, assist or help or move along or encourage or whatever it is I'm, I think I'm supposed to be doing. And so uh, I know it because uh, the connection has to have that spiritual quality. There's, I, there's a couple of other things I'd like to talk about here really quick, if we, can, if we can do those. In addition to the qualities, I'd like to deal with the name that Ibn al-Arabi, who was called Muhyiddin, the, uh, he also gave the uh, Muhi, a, a title to Jesus. He called it Muhi. And, uh, you know, I, I'm thinking you, you know the root of that word. Is there something you would like to maybe share, uh, draw on your Arabic expertise? Sure. So Muhyiddin, which is what we call Ibn Arabi, in addition to calling him a Sheikh al-Akbar, right? the greatest Sheikh, right? Yeah. He's also called Muhyiddin, which means he is a reviver or restorer of religion. Dean, I mean, loosely translating Dean as religious, that's usually translated. I yeah. think Dean is something different from religion. We can probably well, go as we understand some other time. It, yeah. yeah. But, you know, he's this restorer of, of the, the path, let's say, right? Mm-hmm. Can, I, can I put it that way? Yeah, we would say restore because the, the H and the Y in there uh, mu, I would take to mean sort of a, a prefix that means a person who or someone who. Right. And someone who is hayi. Bringing life. Bringing life. Right. And it's not only so a restorer of life, a revivifier. And, and muhi is used not just muhiyadin by Ibn al-Arabi. Muhi. Uh, and so we think of all the ways in which Jesus was a giver of life, a restorer of life. Well, I think of resurrection, too, when I think of Muhi. He's restoring life. And for the Sufi, it goes even deeper. Deeper Uh, than resurrection? Deeper than resurrection, deeper than raising people from the dead, even deeper than raising Lazarus from the dead. Yet the examples seem almost absurd to us when we read them. So I want to go to a story that's related in the Quran, but it already predated the Quran and was found in ancient Near Eastern texts that were extant in early Christianity and that would have been available to people in the time of Muhammad that we don't include in our Bible now. One of them would be the infancy gospel of James. Another example would be the infancy gospel of Thomas. And so the story I'm about to, to relate, although found in the Quran, is actually also found in, in early Christian writings, but uh, was not included in, in our discussion. Maybe it wasn't included because Joseph doesn't appear in them. Are you getting at Jesus making a pigeon out of clay and then breathing life into it? Absolutely. The spirit, right? Life. That, remember, the spirit, right? We say spirit. We're translating a word that if it's the Hebrew, right, then it's going to be ruach, and it's going to be, and the Arabic is ruh, right? So it's the cognate, right? It's going to be the breath of life. It's the very breath of life. It's the spirit of God. It's the the wind, even, right? All of those things. And that, that's in the Gospel of Thomas. 
The, I th- I one of the Gnostic that, Gospels. Correct. I know it's in the infancy Gospel of Thomas, too, which is a, separate from the document we call the, the, the Gospel of Thomas. So I think it's, it, it abounds. The story abounds. But let's take the parallel the Sufi sees in this. Only the divine can take dead clay, form it into a body, so to speak, and breathe life into it and create a living soul. And that's why in the Muslim tradition where Jesus is not necessarily seen as divine, it is said that he does this uh, with God's permission. Yeah, and, and if you look at that, another way of interpreting this, and I've talked to uh, Jabra Ghanem and other famous translators of, of uh, our, our standard works and other things into Arabic, and I talked to him about it, and he says, well, if you look at the word that, that, that says, with my permission, Really, what it is saying, it, it, it's not saying that every time Jesus does something, he has to ask God for permission. Instead, what it is, it said, well, what do you think I sent him in the first place? I mean, the, the, the permission began before he ever came here, right? That's where him, he's messiah, right? Chosen. That's, that's where he's anointed and chosen. That's exactly right. And so, so Jesus is the only mortal we know of on this planet that could, could be the divine. He could, he could take dead clay and breathe into it, and it came to life. And okay, it is a story about a young boy making pigeons out of clay. But, but because we, we look at that and it's not in our Bible, we often, I've, I've told people about that and go, well, that's just silly. And I'm going, it's silly? Are you joking me? It's not silly. It's a beautiful story of the miracle of Jesus. It is, and it tells us something about what Jesus means, right? So whether it's historical or not, to me, is irrelevant, right? It tells us the meaning of Jesus. Correct. A life giver. He's muhi. He can give that life to dead clay. Uh, there's a, a, a beautiful poem by Rumi where a guy's in bed dying, and, and uh, all the family's gathered around, and they're preparing to mourn, and all of a sudden there's a great commotion outside of this house in the street. And someone opens the door and they said, hurry, get up. Jesus is here. And he goes, oh, leave me alone. I'm, I'm sick. Which is, of course, a metaphor for our spiritual condition, right? You know, we're ill. Leave me alone. I'm sick. I'm dying. And the, and the person shakes and gets the person out of bed. He said, I don't care if you're already dead. Jesus is here and he wants to resurrect somebody. So get out there and get resurrected. That's that muhi again, right? Who cares what condition you're in? Get up out of that your your pity bed and get on with the project. So so there's these wonderful. I mean, there's humor in that, right? I mean, he's, he's sort there of saying, yeah, "Who cares?" Uh, maybe one more anecdote. And, and I love you know one of the things I love about Sufism is all these stories, and and it they're in the spirit of Jesus, you know. Oh yeah of telling these stories that, that have these lessons, you know, it, again, Nasruddin, such fun stories. And, yeah. and they have this cone-like quality, right? Mm. Uh, I'm, I'm speaking of the, the, the Zen stories that are, are to make you go, hmm, koan, yeah. Yeah, and they are beautiful like that. Uh, and we share them because they impart a, a wisdom that we wouldn't get because we think we already know it. But the way it's told reveals to us that we didn't understand the principle really at all. 
uh, uh, very briefly, one of my favorite Nazarene stories is that uh, Tamerlane, the great Mongol conqueror who built entire pyramids out of human skulls that could be seen from miles off and decimated entire cities and villages and, and killed them, was sweeping through uh, the area where Nazarene lived. Of course, he could live in any time and any place. That's the beauty of it, right? But he, he lived there at that time. And, and Tamerlane's heard of the fame of Nazarene as this really wise guy and knows everything. So he calls him into his court. And, and there's all, you know, he's passing all the bodies on the way, and it's just this terrible stuff. And brings him in there, and, and Tamerlane stands up, and he says, if you're, if you're so wise, why don't you tell me the worth of this belt buckle? And if you answer wrong, remember I hold your life and all these other lives in my hand. Nazardine rubs his beard for a minute. He says, 25 gold pieces. In fact, it wasn't the, excuse me, he, I'm telling a story wrong. He rose up and said, tell me what I'm worth in his all his magnificence. And, and uh, Nazarene says, 25 gold pieces. And he says, this belt buckle alone is worth 25 gold pieces. And Nazarene goes, I, I know, I took that into account. <laughs> and, and so, you know, most of us are worth about 25 gold pieces, but we inflate ourselves tremendously as we go around. And it's a beautiful lesson about the ego there that just because we stand up and chop up bodies or whatever it is, that, that, that doesn't mean anything. That's not, you know, that's not what our value is. Sorry I told that story wrong, but Nazardine stories are always helping us humorously confront our ego. I, I do have another anecdote I want to go into about Jesus here, and then uh, uh, maybe, maybe that's as far as we'll make it in this episode, and that's just fine. I, I think it's beautiful. Let's, um, so I, when I was teaching at the University of Delhi in 2010 and 2011, uh, I knew I would have the opportunity to meet uh, one of my favorite uh, world religions authors, Mary Pat Fisher, because she was on, she was uh, helping to run an ashram, a religious community just outside of Delhi. The name of it was Gobind Sadan. And so I got Mary's phone number from another Fulbright scholar I was with, and, and uh, I called her and, in her office there, and she said, oh, why don't you just come out and visit us? I said, when would be a good time? She said, well, why don't, you, why don't you come out this Friday? I said, why is that? And she said, you know, you're a Christian. Uh, I talked about that. She said, you're a Christian. That's our Jesus Day. Friday is Jesus Day at Gobind Sadan. I go, okay. And other days were Christian days, and other days were... Uh, you know, Moses Day, they, were, they had a synagogue, they had a mosque, they had uh, shrines to Hindu gods and all these things. So she said, come out and I'll, I'll show you around. So I went out there, several beautiful things that happened there, but, but I'm going to focus on this one. As night began to descend, because it was in December, so it came for pretty early, and I brought some candy bars and things out because they have an orphanage. And I thought, I bet the kids would love to have a little treat. So I brought them out, and that's what I was going to give and do my thing. And she took me out to what they call the Jesus Shrine, which is it was a statue, life-size statue of Jesus with his arms spread wide. And, of course, being in the Hindu uh, culture, they dressed him. It was cold, so he had mittens on. And he had a scarf and a robe, right? And, and, uh, and was there, and then... The children, the orphans came, and they began to sing. All the, all the girls on one side and all the boys on another side. And they were chanting. It was responsora. They were chant, chanting things back to each other. And I, I couldn't understand what they were saying, you know. And, and so I asked Mary Pat to translate. And he says, well, they're, they're telling about Jesus. It's Jesus Day. 
And it was a complete recounting of all the deeds of Jesus in his life. He healed the blind, he gave it, uh, and the others would respond and saying, but he, lo-, you know. And so they, they, were, they were, from memory, uh, completely chanting all of this. It was very beautiful. I thought, wow, they really do care about Jesus. You know, as a primary chorister at the time, I'm thinking, wow, I'd like my kids to be able to memorize like this. You know, they're, they're really into this. Then when everything was done, I, they got my candy bars and some other things that people had brought, and they put them at the foot of the Jesus statue, and we said a prayer, because the, the God has to bless the offering. So we were all there, and then uh, a couple came forward, and they had a blanket, and they put their baby at Jesus' feet. That really struck me right there. And I said to myself, what is this? What is this offering? So when it was over and the kids were eating the candy and people were talking, I went over to introduce myself. And they were from Mumbai, which is a significant distance away from Delhi, and which I thought was unusual, that they come to this shrine out in the middle of you know, uh, the outskirts of Delhi. It was just barren land, basically. And all the way out there, and I thought, I asked them, why are you here? And they said, we couldn't have children. But someone in Mumbai said, go to Gobind Sadan to the Jesus Shrine. Because Jesus is the God of miracles. I said, okay. She was saying, my womb was lifeless, and I knew Jesus could give me life in my womb. We came, we honored, we prayed. And they had no, I could tell they were poor. They were actually Sikhs. They weren't Muslim or Hindu. They were actually Sikhs. They weren't Christians. And, and came out and, and uh, it's fascinating by the story because it cost them money. They didn't have a lot of money. So every six months they came out for three years. And then she said, and then I got pregnant. And this is our baby. It's our little girl, Divya, which means goddess. And so they had offered to him and said, Jesus was the God of miracles. So faith in Jesus Christ, I learned, doesn't have to be faith in a creed about Jesus Christ. Faith in Jesus Christ is a living thing that people can acquire. And he is muhi. He gave life to her womb. And, and so this is how the Sufi sees Jesus. It's, it's not external, it's internal, it's personal. There's another story of Jesus's infancy found in those same texts that you mentioned earlier, which is where Jesus is speaking from the cradle. Uh-huh. And it's interesting because he's, uh, he's called, Jesus is called Kalim, Kalimatullah in, yeah. the, in the Quran, right? He's the word of God, the, the exact same words that uh, John chooses. To, and John being, by the way, the most mystical of the gospel authors, right? Correct. Uh, at least the canonical gospels. Again, we do see this in the Gnostic Gospels and these, some of these extra-canonical texts. But he's speaking from, from the cradle, right? Wisdom yeah. as an infant. As a what, baby. What is, right. What is, the, what is the meaning of that? Well, okay, that's a great story. The notion of Messiah, I as a Sufi take that notion to mean that he was anointed to his mission. He was put on that path at conception. And that he immediately moved along that path as a mercy and a grace to us. I see. A gift. And so he started teaching the moment he could. I mean, he never stopped. 
that, that, that anointed mission, so to speak, was in the cradle and in him as a baby. And, and so this, it makes me wonder what my mission is. It makes me wonder what my, you know, because we each, we each in that sense, uh, I, and as a Sufi, I believe we're each anointed in that sense. And we've come into this world. And I'm not Jesus, but Jesus was mortal. And, and I have my gifts. And so part of that story, again, uh, for, for the Sufi is the Word of God is living. It's while Jesus is doing it, speaking from the cradle, or while it's doing it in my heart and my soul. Right? So, so we want to have the living Word. That's what Messiah can mean in there. So, yeah, we, we, we accept uh, that from his childhood. And, and uh, you know, it's beautiful for us. You know, again, reflecting on what Jesus means to me, I just feel myself very much in this conversation as, as almost as though it's, I'm in a devotional, right? I'm in this conversation with you, and it's a devotional, and, and I feel very present mm-hmm. to Jesus. I feel Jesus very present to me, mm-hmm. and, and it brings me back to the verse, right, that we started with. Yeah, and 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 so when we make this full circle of investigation, this scriptural and spiritual parabola that we've traced, where we begin with a text and we move out into spiritual and unknown territory, we come back home, don't we? Yeah, and I feel like Christ is alive in me. I'm alive in Christ. And so coming back to the verse, for to me, living is Christ. Mm-hmm. And dying is gain. So the, the living in Christ and Christ as, Christ as living or life as Christ, all of that feels very much alive to me. Right? And then beautiful. dying is gain. And I believe it is alive to you. I guess would just be the... And dying is gain, I guess would be what I'm missing in this conversation, and, and happily so. Well, I think we'll save this for another time where we talk about Jesus as the way. We sort of just talked about Jesus as Messiah and some of the background of Jesus, how Sufis see Jesus, and why, why they're going to look at him and go, he's a Sufi. Right, because all of the characteristics we seek are perfected in Jesus. And, and so we only got that far. Uh, I think we've got, we've got a whole level of, we really didn't deal with Jesus as the way. And uh, this has to do with the annihilation of the ego. This has to do with dying as to the ego. So we, we didn't make it that far, but I think we've had a beautiful conversation up to this point. I don't, I don't think there's anything we need to do now. I think we're going to find it again because Paul repeats this again and again and again. Sure. So, so what you're saying then is, I guess, the, when we look at this, I, I pointed out that for, to me, living is Christ, that became very much alive in this conversation for me very present uh, the other side of the conject and and dying is gain right this is the uh, you're saying it's an ego death as i suggested earlier right so it's coming out of the life that isn't life in christ into a life in christ yes that's exactly right uh, a new life in christ that's yeah. a beautiful thing can i share in closing my favorite nasruddin story yeah this have another i don't know nasruddin if it's on story. topic or not because i don't know what the meaning of it is and when I say that, what I really mean is, I don't know that it has a the meaning. I'm open to 
I'm open to whatever the listener gets from this. Let's story. chat about it. I want to hear what you have to say, and let's chat about it. That's what the purpose of these is, uh, episodes is for. So this story has Nasruddin looking for his keys outside, and his students come along, and they want to help him. Of course, you know, he's, he's their master and he's given them so much. And so they say, what, what are you looking for? My keys. Well, where, you know where you lost them? Isn't it funny how we ask that question? I think there's something just in that question, right? Well, do you know where you lost them? He says, yeah, in, inside. And they're just puzzled and they just, they just look at him and say, well, then why are you looking outside? He says, because there's more light out here. Yeah, <laughs> I could see better out here. Yeah. Uh, and, and. Uh, let's let's chat about that through another brief Nazardine story. That I think is a companion, which is Nazardine on a train, and the train's going and it's very crowded, and he's going on this journey, and the conductor comes through and wants to see all the tickets, and so Nazardine realizes he doesn't have his ticket, and he checks his pants pockets, and he checks, he starts you know looking around and. Finally, he checks his luggage, and then he starts checking other people's luggage. You know, he's just kind of going wild <laughs> to find this. And the conductor knows him. He says, Nazardine, I know you got a ticket. You know, wh- I haven't seen you reach into the left breast pocket of your jacket. That's where people keep a lot of things like that. Is that just the inside breast pocket inside of your jacket? Why don't you reach in there and pull it out? And he says, oh, no, I can't do that. He said, why not? And he said, because if it's not there, I'd have no hope. Mm. The vain hopes we carry and the ridiculous methods where we know it's inside, but we'd rather be out in the light of day. We'd rather live the exterior life than have to confront what awaits us in the interior investigation that is the hidden part of our life, the raib of our life, where it's hidden down inside of us that has to be the deep spiritual work. But we'd rather be out there in the light. I'd rather go to a meeting and feel good about myself because I said the right, what was expected. Or I'm dressed according to the culture or whatever. Something told me that would relate back to this verse. That's, that's life in Christ, right? Versus yeah. this worldly life that we're after. Death, death to the world, so to speak. Death to the worldliness, and of course, it has the parallel of literal death, but but which we can all expect, and uh, you know that that's that's where we're headed. And life again in Christ, the the reviver, right? The muhi. It's a series of revivings. It's it's reviving the so, the intelligence and making a soul of it before we came here. It's the reviving as in giving us a body and breathing a breath of life into it. So our soul is now part of a, a more complex structure that, that, that we go with. And then we die as to that, that, excuse me, and we die as to that, and that's a reviving as well. And so on and so forth. And as Rumi said, when have I ever been less by dying? I, I'm good with it because I'm always more by dying. And so death is gain. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Master. Oh, you're, I'm very grateful to you. Thank you for putting up with my long anecdotes today, but I hope they were illustrative and beneficial, and, and I hope that we can learn not, to, not only to live in Christ as best we can, but to bring that life into our practice and find out what our soul wants to tell us about how we, how we can die to the ego and live even more fully, that death will be gained to us. So, Amen. Amen and amen.
Thank you for listening to Latter-day Contemplation Presents Come Follow Me. Once again, I'm your co-host, Christopher Hurtado. Please also consider listening to Latter-day Peace Studies' other podcasts I co-host, Latter-day Contemplation, offering a contemplative approach to discipleship, and Latter-day Peace Studies Presents Come Follow Me, offering nonviolent historical critical exegesis of Latter-day Saint scripture at www.latterdaypeacestudies.org. Once again, I'm Dr. David Peck. Please also consider listening to my other podcast of Saints and Sufis, Musings of a Mormon Mystic, offering Sufi meditations and commentary through my The Truth of Jesus is Himself series at www.daviddpeck.com. Thank you for co-hosting this podcast with me, Sheikh Daoud. Thanks also to Latter-day Peace Studies all-volunteer team for editing, publishing, and promoting this podcast on social media. Finally, Thanks to our audience for listening and responding to this podcast and for donating to Latter-day Peace Studies, a 501c3 nonprofit organization. All of your donations are tax-deductible and go toward producing, publishing, and distributing content. And thank you for co-hosting this podcast with me, Abdelhop. Till next week. <laughs> <laughs>